Investors like you have a problem. Today, most portfolios only include stocks and bonds. While it's currently performing, it's a strategy that Goldman Sachs predicted in 2023 to underperform for the next decade. Luckily, our sponsor, Masterworks Advisors, focuses on a non-traditional alternative asset, helping over 15,000 investors diversify a portion of their overall portfolios with blue-chip post-war contemporary art. Over 60% of wealth managers surveyed by Deloitte have already integrated art into their wealth management offering. And by signing up at masterworks.com slash advisors with code free, you can talk to a registered investment advisor representative who deals exclusively with this alternative asset class. So schedule a free same-day advisory call with Masterworks Advisors just by going to masterworks.com slash advisors and using promo code free. That's masterworks.com slash advisors promo code free. This advertisement relates to the provision of advisory services by Masterworks Advisors, LLC, and is not intended to offer or solicit investment in any securities and is not investment advice. Masterworks Advisors is affiliated with Masterworks. I realized that finance was bullshit and math is truth. I just applied math and accounting proofs to things that look too good to be true. And when you look closely, everybody else assumes genius. I say bullshit until I can prove it. And until then, it's, to me, it's fraud. Meet Harry Markopoulos. Now, some of you may not know who he is, but you absolutely should. Harry was the guy who blew the whistle on Bernie Madoff when no one would listen. The same Bernie Madoff who lost investors $18 billion before the great financial crisis of 2008. Well, Bernie, he only went up 45-degree angle. And when you see a 45-degree angle in finance, 45-degree angle in finance means one thing, fraud. And worst of all, accounting firms that are supposed to vet financial statements and protect investors, I mean, not only were they asleep at the wheel, but they were incentivized to drive the damn thing off the cliff. Name the big company-killing multi-billion dollar fraud schemes that were caught by the big four accounting firms. You can't. There aren't any. Now, if I asked you, well, name all the big multi-billion dollar accounting frauds that the big four aided and abetted, we could be here all afternoon. Harry doesn't even get up to go to work unless the fraud is greater than $5 billion. So I just raised my minimums. $5 billion is my current minimum for a public company accounting fraud. I can't touch them under that. I just let them go because there's so many that are larger. Working under the cover of darkness, Harry assembles a team of financial, accounting, and tax experts to take down Ponzi schemes that no one else is willing to touch. And so I have a group of individuals that loves doing Ponzi schemes. And they're basically in the hedge fund industry. So I, I get young men that have professional certifications that are really good at accounting and math. And they do it part-time, unbeknownst to their employers. So the nights and weekends, they're Ponzi hunters. And if Harry and his team of fraud busters have you in their sights, look out. This week on Adventures in Finance, Harry Markopoulos. Also coming up in this week's episode, we have our long short segment where Aaron and I discuss the good and the not so good stories of the week. I am long LeBron James because he just pledged $87 million and is collaborating with the University of Akron, Ohio, yes, um, to provide guaranteed four-year scholarships uh, to the school for students in his I Promise program. Uh, And I'm short um, Chinese bike sharing. Now, we've all seen uh, in cities across the world now, these blue in London, they're called the Boris bikes, I don't know what they call them elsewhere, but these uh, you pick up in one place, pay a little fee, and you and you drop off somewhere else. And in China, uh, a company called Wukong Bike uh, has uh, shuttered last week. And in a favorite segment of ours called Things I Got Wrong, we speak with a market expert about an investing mistake they made, and then we ask them to share an investing lesson they derived from that experience. Yeah, we've got a good one this week. Marion Katusa, a good friend of mine who is a professional investor and the founder of Katusa Research. Uh, and he talks about a mistake he made when he became, almost accidentally, the biggest investor in a mining company at a remarkably young age. I'm Grant Williams. I'm Aaron Chen, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is June 22nd, 2017, and welcome to episode 21 of Adventures in Finance. To my writer, James and Grant, how are you guys doing? Yeah, doing all right. Doing good. I'm reserving judgment Grant. for the time being, depending on James's behavior in the next half an hour. <laughs> hey, I resent that remark. Well, he's sitting between us, so he can't really get up to much. Well, we'll see. Guys, it's been pretty stormy here in Cayman, uh, and I think we have a tropical storm headed our way. We do. Uh, Brett, or Brit, 
as the Kiwis would call him, uh, were this in the Southern Hemisphere. But uh, yes, Tropical Storm Brit is uh, is firing up and looking ready to take aim at us this weekend, I think. This is going to be my first uh, hurricane or tropical storm season in Cayman. We're actually anywhere for that matter. So, uh, James, do you have any... Uh, it's the height of excitement. Is it really, Honestly. though? You called it the cone of death today as we were looking at the, yeah, at the charts and stuff. just to make sure so. that you're not in the cone of death and you're fine. That, I, think, I think that actually is a reasonable lesson to live throughout your whole life, Aaron. Just try and stay away from anything called the cone of death. Okay? Yeah, but, you know, disrupting financial media, cone of death. Ugh, well, unless it's you the the dance, I guess. You could probably stay close to something called the cone of death in hagen But yeah. we should probably move on. Yes, why don't we? And let's move on to our long, short segment where Grant and I talk about the good and not-so-good stories of the week. Grant, you started last week. I did. I so why don't you take us away this week? Yeah, let me start off here. And I'll start with something a little bit more optimistic. And I am long LeBron James. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So a couple of weeks back, uh, Brent Johnson, a friend of the show and a friend of Real Vision was on. I think he was talking about basketball as well. But He was long the Lakers. Yes, he was long the Lakers. And I am long LeBron James because he just pledged $87 million and is collaborating with the University of Akron. Akron, 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 Ohio. Yes. Akron, Ohio, yes. Um, to provide guaranteed four-year scholarships uh, to the school for students in his I Promise program. And this program basically, it's to help inner city kids and kids from where he's from who don't have the opportunity to go to college to basically you know, a free four-year uh, scholarship. That's awesome. I mean, LeBron yeah. James famously skipped college. Joe went straight in the NBA after high school. Yes, uh, he did. So that's, right from uh, the draft. Yeah, that, hey, that's phenomenal. Good, good it for is. him. Um, you know, and I don't mean to... You know, because it's it, it is a great story, and it's nice to see someone who you know he just finished, he just lost in the NBA Finals, but you know now he's he's out here and, and helping the community that he's from. I just sometimes wonder if you know these people who have influence and can reach so many people, if they understood actually what was behind, uh, like you know, if if our education, well, not our, but if the U.S. education system wasn't as messed up as it was. Um, with the with gigantic bureaucracy subsidies, subsidies from the government, someone like LeBron James wouldn't just you know just sounds like feels like he's throwing money at the problem. And I, I almost wish that these people who have so much influence would dig a little bit deeper into what are the you know what what's actually wrong with the system as opposed to just throwing money. Well, but the trouble is, you, you can make a lot of good positive changes with eighty seven million dollars. Uh, think about what you would have to go through if you were trying to get yourself involved in the quagmire that is. The bureaucracy surrounding surrounding education, not just in the US but in every country. I mean, James twenty twenty two. Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, this this may be where things are going, but it's it's tough as as uh, the leader of the free world is demonstrating. Once you even get the big seat, it's tough to actually get stuff done. Even then, so it's uh, it is a morass. But hey, good on Loren, uh, LeBron James for, for for stumping up some cash. That's phenomenal. Yeah, I, I hadn't seen that story. Um, funny enough, I, my original. Uh, long and short was going to be golf this week. I, I'd watched the US Open, um, which uh, is something I enjoy doing. And I have to say, uh, the last day this this past Sunday was fantastic to see. But you know, I watched Brooks Kepka win this thing, and just in an incredible performance, totally in control of his emotions and everything. And then when he won, I realised he wasn't in control of his emotions at all. He just had no emotion. I mean, it was it was amazing to see someone reach the pinnacle of a sport and be so matter of fact and show no emotion about it whatsoever i, right. I was astounded but I, I threw that one out because i've got something way way better than that i'm going to start off with my short uh, and i'm short um chinese bike sharing now we've all seen uh, in cities across the world now these blue in london they're called the boris bikes i don't know what they call them elsewhere but these uh city bike in new york bi- so yeah, yeah exactly you sponsor bikes that you that you, you that you pick up in one place pay a little fee and you and you drop off somewhere else and in china uh, a company called Wukong Bike uh, has uh, shuttered last week. Uh, it was uh, for a what they called a strategic company restructuring. Now, what happened was the company didn't bother embedding GPS chips into their bikes. That might be a problem. Uh, yeah. Now, the service cost half a yuan or about 7.3 US cents to a top range of about one yuan for an hour. Uh, it had 1,200 bikes in the southwest city of Chongqing. But most of the bikes were quote unquote lost because there were no <laughs> GPS systems. And by the time they decided that they'd stick devices in them, they'd basically run out of bikes and money. So I am oh, short boy. Chinese bikes, as are Wukong, it would appear. You know, next time I lose my bike, I think I might have to do some kind of strategic restructuring. Of, uh... <laughs> well, do you, know, do you know what's amazing, Aaron, is that there are two other companies, Mobike and Ofo, 
uh, I believe the M is silent, and they um, they have received at least a billion dollars in investments for these companies. Outside investors or Tencent, uh, Bertelsmann yeah. in the okay. U.S. Uh, and Ant Financial, obviously, which is swallowing up the world in China. Right. Um, but it's amazing the amount of money that's been thrown at these things. You would think that uh, putting GPS chips in the bikes would have been job number one, but it wasn't to be. Well, there's such a rush. I, I feel like uh, to get into these markets and to you know replicate some of the strategies that they that, that exist in in US and also in Europe. So. Uh, it doesn't surprise me in some ways that they would overlook this. I mean, the, the, the running joke back then and maybe still now is that, you know, made in China, it's made, it's missing some parts or, you know, you, you bought a shirt and it's missing a sleeve. I mean, obviously that's, you know, well, you know, look, here, but to me, the day your first bike goes missing is the day you think, you know what, maybe we should put GPS chips in them. Not, not when the vast majority of the 1200 have vanished, unless right. they all went on day one, I guess, who knows? Yeah. But anyway, that's my short. I will jump in with my long, but I have a horrible feeling James is about to interrupt us looking at that face. Well, I was just looking over your shoulder at the photograph of the bikes in question and they're bright yellow. Yeah. Like hard to steal. Yeah. I mean, you would, you would think that they could just drive around and, picking up all the bright yellow yeah, bikes. But China's around. a big place, man. Listen, they're, they're, I'm sure there are chop shops where they respray bikes. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> chop, I, I, I would have thought shop. it was a difficult thing to do. <laughs> anyway, my long. Now, this is a sad long for me, actually. Um, my long is is blame culture. Uh, and two, two articles I read recently, um, one which I read with a smirk on my face. It was written by a lady called Anne Pettifor, who... Um, is one of the fellows at the Policy Research in Macroeconomics, or PRIME, which is, uh, I balk at using the word, a Keynesian think tank. Um, but uh, she wrote an article called We Need a Public Inquiry into the Economics Profession. And there's a few quotes that I want to pick out mm. because it's um, this idea of blame, there having to be someone to blame for everything is, is remarkable. And bearing in mind, economists are essentially tasked with seeing the future. So we know... They have no chance. Well, there's no reason pack. why they could get this right. But yeah. no, I I've have my issues with economists, but reading some of the quotes from this article by Anne Pettifor is extraordinary. It says, um, if the British economy crashes as a result of Brexit, it will not vindicate economists. It will simply illustrate once again their failure. I and my colleagues at Policy Research in Macroeconomics believe there is urgent need for an independent public inquiry into the economics profession and its role in precipitating both the financial crisis of 2007, the subsequent very slow recovery, and in the British-European referendum campaign. Economists have once again proved themselves not only irrelevant, but a dangerous irrelevance. For too long, they've resisted call after call for reform. If they do not do it themselves, then it's time for others to take control. The profession should be brought to account through a public inquiry into the failure. Now, call me old-fashioned. But if you sit someone down and say, okay, I want you to predict the future and then punish them for getting it wrong, it's remarkable. Now, I understand her point about the influence these guys have. Right. But at the end of the day, you are allowing people predicting the future to exert influence. Now, the problem is not with them. The problem is perhaps with you for allowing them to exert that, that, that influence. And the second, uh, the second prong of this story was actually a, a lot more saddening to me. There was an article in the UK Guardian a couple of uh, weeks ago uh, and the title was, It's Not Just the 1%. The Upper Middle Class is Oppressing oh, Everyone Else Too. Yeah. Now, this to me, I, I, I tweeted this and I called it trickle-down populism. Um, and and it's, it's frightening to me. Now, Brookings Institute fellow Richard Reeves has written a book called Dream Hoarders. Uh, and he notes that while the US has always had a class system, the upper middle class, which he remarkably to me defines as those earning 120000 a year or more, is not only widening the gap between itself and everyone else, but also hoarding opportunities in a way that makes it difficult for any outsiders to climb up to it. He says the 1% is getting richer even more quickly, but there aren't enough of them to hoard opportunities on a massive scale. And this, you know, it, it, very sadly, it brought to mind the famous Martin Niemöller um, poem about uh, the Nazis. When it starts, you know, first they came for the socialists and I wasn't a socialist, so I didn't speak out. Um, you know, it's a tragic poem. And, and this, this blame culture and this angst and the, and the feeling of there has to be a need and an outlet uh, at which to direct your ire is really troubling to me. You know, we, uh, that was, I think, a, a lot of the root cause of the US election, uh, election and, and the sort of uh, di divergence of opinion since. It's happening in the UK with some of the terrorist acts and the response to them. And this, this need for someone to blame, I think, is a very, very dangerous development. Yeah, it seems like a natural outgrowth of this sort of like untethered open loop system that we, you know, fiat system that we have too, right? I mean, Grant, on, on the one hand, when Anne Pettifor is talking about, you know, 
bringing economists to account, part of me wants to see that happen. Like, I almost want to see some kind of Nuremberg trial for these central bankers. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> steady on, steady on, steady on. Now, that's, that, that, that's, that, that's a step too far. Look, for, I understand her point, but the problem is when you say to people, okay, make a prediction about the future and then give them carte blanche to act on that, the, the problem is not, as I said, it's not with them. It's the power you give them to effectively play witch doctor and then invest public money and invest the futures right. of populations in their deliberations. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a very dangerous thing to do. Yeah, no, that's true. I, I don't think all the blame is, should be heaped onto the economists. I mean, we shouldn't also forget about the political angle here too, right? Yeah, because, of course. Because, you know, certain um, schools of economics lend itself to uh, politicians who want to promise and, and, uh, and, and, and acquire power and votes. And, well, absolutely. And look, and what the, what the central bankers uh, and the economists and policymakers have suggested over the last several years is you know, a politician's dream. So, of course, it's just a self-reinforcing circle. But when you start looking for small groups of people to blame, it's, uh, it's the very thin end of a very wide wedge to me. Anyway, so as I said, I was long of that, not because I think it's a good idea, but because I see it increasing. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, I think you're right, and we'll only see it increase. Well, Grant, before we run out of time, I, let me move on to my short for the week, which is actually not, ugh, I don't know if which one is more is, uh, is, is sadder, but I am short GE. And uh, recently, Jeffrey Milt, who is the CEO. Uh, I, saw, I know exactly yeah, what you're you going know what with I'm this. talking about. Uh, Jeffrey Milt um, announced a transition plan, and who, you know, John Fl uh, Flannery, who's going to be taking over uh, as a new appointed CEO. Uh, uh, for GE. And basically, it sh uh, they talked about how GE has the largest pension shortfall out of all yeah. the S&P 500, uh, 500 companies and of any corporation in the United States. And so they have essentially a $31 billion pension hole on their balance sheet. Meanwhile, the past couple of years, GE mm -hmm. has spent $45 billion on share buybacks. Yeah. yeah. This, I, I saw this article and uh, I, I look, it's shameful, frankly. And, and but, but look, again, we're talking about blame. Uh, some of the blame has to go to shareholders who should be in those shareholder meetings, agitating and and making a lot of noise about this and saying, "Hey, you know, what the hell are you doing?" But of course, the buybacks boost the share price, and so you know, this is all about incentive systems. The incentives for executives to get paid off a form, share price performance, and shareholders to to see their, the valuation of their stocks go up. Plus, of course, you've got the fact that GE is I don't know how many ETFs it's a it's a, yes, it's a constituent part true. of. But that none of that helps this either. But I, I saw the article. I, I totally agree with you. I think it's absolutely shameful. Yeah, it's shameful, and and unfortunately, we're probably going to see more of these. That, you know, these headlines emerge. There with are time plenty as of them pensions. out there going to float to the surface. Yeah, absolutely, and it has a lot to do with our commentary feature this week, where we're going to be re revisiting one of my all-time favorite Real Vision TV interviews. Um, Harry Markopoulos. Now, Harry's irreverent style, um, and he's just just going after what most in the industry would consider sacred. I, I think. It's incredible, just him exposing the frauds and blazing this trail that's littered with, you know, these these hucksters and uh, on the side of the road. It was just an incredible interview, and I was so excited to get you and Raul to sit down and to revisit that. You know, Grant, it's fantastic to get somebody like Harry Markopoulos. Yeah. A, he's got a brilliant name, but also Harry is kind of legendary for the guy who went to the SEC I don't know how many times, like 19 times or whatever it was, I'm sure it'll come out in this interview, to tell them that Madoff was a fraud. He had the bee in his bonnet. He kept telling everybody and nobody would listen. You know, it's amazing that people... And it's, it's, it happens in financial markets all the time. People just don't want to listen when somebody says, well, that's not right. And Harry proved the whole thing in the end and kind of cleared his name and has now become a famous kind of super sleuth yeah. that uh, is a famous whistleblower who uncovers fraud everywhere. And it was just a great interview. He's a really fun, entertaining, charming and great guy. I was a derivatives professional managing billions in assets uh, in Boston. And I came across Bernie Madoff and that's how I got into the Madoff case. But I have other cases that I've done that you've probably heard of. I've done the foreign exchange cases, and so as a result of those cases and the settlements in those cases with various state attorney generals and the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission, having enforcement actions there, the spreads in foreign X for investments, investors, are cut in half. So mm. I'm saving probably, in fact, the SEC, I give the SEC credit for that, they save, more, they save investors more every week than their budget is for the year. Really? Well, $5 trillion a day. Trades in the Forex. Yeah. The spreads for investors have been cut in half as a result of the foreign exchange cases. And so they're making investors money. 
And they, they don't even know it, but they are. So the SEC has done a good job there. And so what are the other cases you've worked on? I'm doing some large-sized Ponzi schemes currently. I have a $500 million minimum on Ponzi schemes, so I tend to concentrate on the bigger ones. And for public company accounting frauds, my minimum there is about $5 billion U.S. So how did you get into this to become a fraud investigator? I realized that finance was bullshit and math is truth. And I just applied math and accounting proofs to things that look too good to be true. And when you look closely, everybody else assumes genius. I say bullshit until I can prove it. And until then, it's, to me, it's fraud. So the finance industry has got to be perfect for that because it's full of purported geniuses and there's a lot of money at stake. So I guess fraud is, you know, is ever present. My motto is assume fraud first until genius is proven. And I just use math and accounting techniques. And I want to see if it's really genius or if it's something else. Usually it's fraud. There's only one Apple, one Google. Everybody else, probably a fraudster. (laughs) Brilliant. Harry is so entertaining. And it's just his view of the world is so deeply cynical. And and deeply black and white. I mean, that's it, right? They're either geniuses or frauds. Nothing in between. There's no bumbling people, you know, kind of making it through. You know, what he said there about math is truth, that to me underpins not just the fraud side of things, but the credit, the leverage, what the Fed's doing. Ultimately, I keep saying this, but the, the only laws that politicians and central bankers can't rewrite are physics and mathematics. And these, these laws of math that Harry uses to determine frauds are going to come around and bite people in the arse at some point. Anyway, we should listen to more of this and see how, how the story develops. Madoff was one of my competitors, and he was using a strategy that was unworkable because he was really bad at portfolio construction mathematics. He was pretending to replicate the OEX Standard & Poor's 100 stock index, but he was doing it fo- rather foolishly. He was saying he was only using 30 to 35 stocks to replicate that 100-stock basket, and a true derivatives professional would have never assumed the single-stock company-specific risk that Madoff did. He would have just neutralized that risk by investing in the index and in the appropriate market cap weights. He couldn't have, Madoff had to be picking stocks because of the way he constructed his so-called replicating portfolio. He would have had to only pick stocks that went up or stayed the same, but never went down. And I didn't think that was possible. So you got this idea in your head. What do you do? I sent our marketing guy, Frank Casey. He was our senior VP of marketing. You go down to New York, find out what this Madoff guy is doing. He comes back with a terror sheet, and in five minutes I knew it was bullshit. Am I allowed to say that on TV? Of course you are. This oh. is real vision. Okay, good. So you realize it's bullshit. So then what makes you then want to take this challenge on to get him prosecuted or tell the world about it when nobody wants to hear what you've got to say? Well, he's stealing my clients. He's stealing the clients of every legitimate asset manager. His sharp ratios are in the high twos, low threes. And so everybody's investing in Bernie. And so there's no room for me because my returns are real. I can't run a sharp ratio like that. The market goes up and down, and my strategy will too. Well, Bernie, he only went up 45-degree angle. And when you see a 45-degree angle in finance, we don't have those in finance. Those are in textbooks from high school geometry and trigonometry. (laughs) A 45-degree angle in finance means one thing, fraud. Yeah, exactly right. So how long was that process of you starting to build the case against him? How did you start building the case, and then who did you present it to? How did that process all work? Well, at first I presented it to my bosses. They wanted me to re- reverse engineer Madoff's strategy so we could offer it to our clients. <laughs> Obviously. So I did. I looked at it. It took five minutes. And I said, looks like a Ponzi. Then I spent a few hours of modeling it. I said, well, it's definitely a Ponzi. I told my bosses, we can do it. I reverse engineered it. It's easy. Bernie's offering 12% returns, and he's giving you 4% vol. We'll do 14% returns with 4.5% vol. We'll own the market for that Ponzi strategy. And <laughs> they thought I was kidding. And they didn't listen to me. They said, well, he's smarter than you. He's a market maker. He has better math skills. So I had wounded pride. And I said, well, that son of a bitch. He's stealing everybody's clients. I got to stop this guy. And your reputation as well now. Yes. Now my reputation's on, my, on the line. So I started working on it nights and weekends. And I recruited a team. So I had our marketing guy, Frank Casey. I had my other portfolio manager who worked for me, Neil Cello. And then we recruited a senior investigative journalist, Michael Okrant, and we went after Madoff. And it took us about nine years to no avail. 
Hell hath no fury like a Markopolis shamed. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Question Harry comes after you with the big guns. But I think what was great about that is, you know, if you strip away all the Harryisms in there, it's down to knowledge. You know, Harry knew his stuff. Yeah. And when you know your stuff, you know when something's not right. And, you know, he understood index arbitrage, which is one of the strategies that he was talking about in the beginning, and that how a tracking error of the index um, by not choosing all the right stocks would mean that that they they could create enormous losses, not just profits. And what that means to people who don't understand index arbitrage is basically you would sell the futures contract because it trades slightly expensively compared to where the basket of stocks should trade that's underlying that futures contract. And most index arbitrages buy all 500 shares in the S&P 500 or whatever index. But what Madoff was doing was apparently buying a subset, but managed to only pick ones that went up. So he had this super return from index arbitrage, which is impossible, because that would be a risk-free, super normal return strategy, which doesn't exist. But that's basically what he was peddling. And Harry figured out that that had to be fraud. The, the thing that struck me when I first watched this interview, you, know, you came back just to kind of rave it about your time with Harry and, and I watched the, the footage of this and what struck me in that clip I remember at the time was how quickly he saw it and how slow everybody else was to pick it up you know Harry's like any derivatives guy will know this for what it was straight away and he was on it immediately but this this cocoon that Madoff had around him because of his reputation because of his you know, time at the on the you know as the chairman of the Nasdaq he had that credibility and people just refused to entertain the fact that it could be a Ponzi scheme, the same way they refused in 2007 to believe the market could top out, the same way a lot of people now refuse to believe that Amazon could go down or Netflix could go down. You know, this, this, this challenging of the pervading narrative is so important for people to do. And to your point, when you get guys that really know their stuff, it's so clear to them straight away. I also just think... Harry's such a great character because he's really smart. He's really engaging. He's funny. He's deeply cynical. I think we should make a documentary about him. I think that'd be so much fun. It takes, it takes deeply cynical people to recognise each other, I think. That's the point there. <laughs> Hubby went in with about a half a dozen red flags. But the SEC at that time was very dysfunctional. It was run by lawyers. It was over-lawyered. And, of course, they didn't understand any financial math. They didn't know what derivatives were. And so my presentation quickly ran, found its way into the circular file. They, they put it in the trash can, and it went nowhere. And I had one champion there who was a chartered financial analyst who had spent 25 years in the industry at the Boston Company and Fidelity, and his name was Ed Mannion. And Ed said, you've got to come back in. We've got some new people. And the following year in 2001, I was back in there presenting again. Same result, very, very disappointing for both Ed Mannion and myself. And finally, in 2005, he calls me back and says, we have a totally new team. These people will get it. You come in and meet them. And they actually did, did get it in Boston. I went into the Boston SEC, spent hours diagramming the concepts on a mark erase board and colors. And I knew not to use derivatives math or anything like that because these are lawyers. But I had very simple explanations for everything. And at the end of that meeting, they said, this is rather serious. If this was in Boston... We'd have multiple teams in there the next day tearing this place apart. Unfortunately, it's in New York where we don't have such a good relationship. So give us a, I'm a, we're going to investigate this, and we'll get back to you very shortly. And they did. A week later, I get a call from Mike Garrity in the Boston office. We found something very disturbing. We're not allowed to share it with you. Uh, this case, we're forwarding it to New York uh, with an urgent recommendation. And that's where it died. The people in New York could have cared less. If they're getting something from Boston, uh, there's a big rivalry between those two offices. It's like the Yankees and the Red Sox. And there's no way in New York was believing that a big case came to them from Boston that was any good. Wouldn't be possible. They would have kept it for themselves, which was not the case. And so they put probably their worst team on it, and they investigated Madoff, and they didn't find anything. How, How could they not find anything? Well, the exam team was convinced that Madoff was front-running because that's what he was basically, that was his cover story. He's trading 5 to 10% of the daily stock exchange volume on the New York Stock Exchange. And he would wink, wink, wink when people would ask him, say, Bernie, your option strategy, we know you're not doing that. What are you really doing? He goes, well, I'm trading 5 to 10% of the daily stock exchange volume. Wink, wink, wink. And I know that if my customers are selling big stocks, 
the S&P 500 is going to go down. And so I know it ahead of the market. Well, that doesn't make any sense. He only knows 5 to 10% in this hand. What he doesn't know is 90 to 95%. <laughs> What's going to determine future price and direction? The 90 to 95% that Madoff knows nothing about. Simple math techniques will solve big fraud cases. And the people on Wall Street were not even capable of doing simple mathematics. All you had to do was do a T-chart. Because the bad guys give you enough information to, to solve their, your case. You take what they say, put it in math terms, 5 to 10% is what he's saying, and does not equal, what, 90 to 95%. Just do a T-chart. And that will solve most of your cases. You can solve most of your big fraud cases on a cocktail napkin. And sometimes for the complex ones, you might have to use the backside of that cocktail napkin. <laughs> again, he puts it brilliantly. He's just so well. But the point is, again, is most of the time it's staring you in the face. Yeah. But you don't want to believe it. It's like when Enron went down, when I learned that 100% of their entire pension fund was in Enron shares. Yeah. Nobody said, oh, is, is that right? Why, why yeah. would you do that? Everyone's like, oh, they're so clever, they know their stock's going up because they're kind of smart, the smartest guys in the room. After that, it was a fraud. Yeah, the, the, when you listen to that, it, it's, I found it quite shocking when I listened to this, just the ineptitude of the regulators. You know, you listen to this, and this is a real-world case. I mean, we can, all, we can all poke fun at regulators and you know, officials of various colours, but when you, you hear a story like this with some guy going to something which he's seen immediately and he's giving them a story on the back of a cocktail napkin um, they ignore him they kick it out they don't get it you know he's very deliberately not using derivatives math you know he understands his audience um, and, and that petty rivalries in the middle between a Boston office and a New York office you know this stuff cost people billions of dollars and talking of billions I mean this is basically part of yeah. the TV series billions you know it's the investigator's office and you see the kind of shenanigans and that looks like drama or over-dramatized on television. But yet Harry's saying, no, this is exactly how it is. Exactly what happens. It's, it's people looking after their own careers instead of their fiduciary duty to investors. It's, it's shocking. Yeah, again, yeah, we talk a lot about finance is not entertainment. These guys, it's not about their career. As you say, it's about the life savings of millions of people. Yeah. Nothing we did stopped Madoff. The authorities refused to listen. What stopped Madoff was the financial crisis, and no one trusted the banking system. And other hedge funds had gates, and other asset classes, for instance, the fixed income markets, were frozen. You couldn't get a bid on corporates. And so where are you going to find liquidity? They went to Madoff. There was no gate, and they went to him like an ATM and pulled their desperately needed cash out to stay afloat. And he saw his cash account at J.P. Morgan. He saw his checking account dwindling to the last few hundred million. And he turned himself in on December 11th, 2008. If we talk about mathematics, it's almost improbable to be able to lose as much money as he did. Well, I mean, you have to be spectacularly bad. It was about 65 billion notional losses, but the real money in was only maybe 20 billion, maybe 23 billion tops. The 65 billion is what people thought they had. That's what appeared on their statements in November 2008. Of course, those returns were phantom, illusory. They weren't real. And so... 20 billion evaporated. And if you looked at who got hit the hardest, you'd have to say it would be the Swiss. Uh, certainly in the US, uh, we got hit pretty hard. I'd say it hit about 11% of the feeder funds in the United States. In Switzerland, it hit about 29%. It was like a nuclear bomb going off over Geneva. It's about 14 billion in wealth just evaporated in Geneva. Wow. So they were hit the hardest. I would say Europe was hit a lot harder than the US. But you only read about the case in the US and not in Europe, because the European investors were never paying taxes. That was always undisclosed, uh, hidden money, dirty money. Uh, I mean, that's the sport in Europe. It's uh, tax evasion, not soccer. <laughs> yeah. And so they couldn't admit in Europe that they had these losses because they never declared the income, the money. And as a result, you, they were silent victims. Where in the U.S., the victims are very noisy. They immediately retained counsel and started suing the feeder funds, the banks, the service providers, anybody that had got them involved with Madoff, they sued. And how much did they recover? The recovery is still ongoing. Here we are almost eight years later, and the cases are winding down through the courts pretty slowly. I think they'll be over in another few years. But some investors will get 100%, on, 100 cents on a dollar, but they'll have waited eight years for it. Yeah. Others who have got nothing. If you went into a feeder fund that wasn't solvent and didn't have any kind of insurance scheme behind it, uh, you may get nothing. Nothing. 
what, what Harry said at the beginning of that clip um, is, is important to remember, and I think people forget this, that Madoff wasn't caught, right? These guys didn't get him. Harry gave him all the evidence, all the information they needed, uh, set them on him, and if it hadn't been for Lehman and 08, who knows where this would have ended up because he ended up having to turn himself in because he realised the game was up because all these people had taken their cash out. You know, this the biggest Ponzi scheme we've seen in living memory, if not in all of history, and it was circumstance that uncovered it, despite Harry Markopoulos laying out exactly what the guy was doing to the regulators. But let's just go back to my point that I made in that video, is how bad a trader was this guy? He might have been the worst trader ever because he was in operation for, I don't know, 15, 20 years, and he managed to consistently lose money and hide it, so much so that he lost $20 billion yeah. of it. That's, that, that takes some doing. I mean, his winners versus losers ratio must have been one of the worst ever. Imagine if you'd just taken the other side of every trade he ever did, we'd be worth $20 billion, Grant. Right, exactly right. <laughs> but, but again, it just comes back to how, how was this not found out? How was it not discovered when you've got that kind of ineptitude on one side and you've got someone like Harry on the case like a bloodhound on the other side. I mean, it's just, it just boggles the mind. All right. It actually irritates me. Yeah. It irritates me that the system just doesn't want to realise. Finance is too powerful in the global economy. Um, and it's a bugbear of both of ours of how powerful it's become. And it's not fair on people because finance just goes to lobby parliament, they, uh, parliament or government. They force things through. They obfuscate things. They make friends with politicians they just don't allow any kind of transparency of what's going on. It's just not right. The biggest beneficiary was the Securities and Exchange Commission. This case took them to their agency's all-time low. They were founded in 1934, and in 2009 they were the laughing stock. And they knew they needed to get better. And there's an old saying I had in school from my headmaster. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. And, and the SEC, to their credit, got going. I met with the chairman about a month after, uh, two months after the fraud became public, and I said, you really need a whistleblower program. Because the way I came in, I was totally ignored. You have no way to collect all the intelligence from all these people coming into the SEC reporting frauds. You have 11 regional offices, and you have a headquarters in Washington. You have 12 different ways of dealing with whistleblowers, none of them the right way. And you need to incentivize integrity. And the Department of Justice has a program that pays 15 to 30% and they get high-quality, multi-billion-dollar cases, and they're about 20, 25 times more effective than you are. And she said, well, Harry, we need to be 20, 25 times more effective. And so I showed her the statistics on whistleblowers, and she said, well, we're going to do this. And truer words were never spoken. We now have a whistleblower program, and the SEC is doing really good cases. The other thing the SEC did to reform itself was they didn't have enough finance people there. They had a bunch of attorneys. Well, attorneys are very smart people, but not at math. They went to law school for a reason, because they don't do well at math. They're very good at the English language. They're very good at rational thought and reasoning and logic. But math is not a strong suit for them. So they're not going to catch anybody on Wall Street. So they needed to have finance professionals, and they do. They have finance professionals that they never had working there before. They're getting people at the, toward the end of their careers in their 50s. People have been laid off. They're not going to get reemployed in the industry. They have a valuable skill set, and they have a financial toolbox that's second to none up here. And now they work for the SEC, and they're subject matter experts, and they have experts for every niche in finance, something that didn't exist there before. And they're very aggressive about doing large cases for the most part. Other than in the New York office, I think the other regional offices love big cases. He really does not like the New York office, <laughs> does he? He's not a fan. <laughs> Yeah, listen, listen to that. It's uh, it's good and bad for me. It's bittersweet. It, it, it's it's so sad that it took something like this for these guys to get their act in order. And I think we all know the reason they got their act in order is because they were under public scrutiny and were made fools of. Uh, so they decided to get their act together. You know, I think if Harry had taken this whistleblower program to them two years earlier, he would have been laughed out of the office. Uh, but on the on the plus side, thankfully, this is now ongoing. Uh, they've had a bloody nose. They don't want another one, so they are going to be more vigilant. Um, it does mean for investors that more of these things are going to come to light because now they are incentivized to track them down. So, you know, we have to be vigilant. But, you know, it, it is a shame that uh, that it takes something like Madoff and people losing billions of dollars to, to energize regulators to do the right thing. 
as ever. And bureaucracy of the system always gets in the way of this kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's good. At least they're trying to do something now. Let's hope um, that they are more vigilant on this kind of stuff and get people earlier on. Because the problem with Madoff, it was too big. So that really damaged people. It's 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 okay. Well, it's not okay, but it's it's less bad when it's a small $20 million fraud hedge fund based out of Miami or something. But when it comes to these massive things that's been so big for so long, it's you know, it's it can break the system if you're not careful. Well to Harry's point, finance guys know finance. And so it's it's a good thing that that some of these guys as Harry says towards the end of their career with all this knowledge are in this position. You know, you had one Harry Markopoulos in that SEC office in New York when this happened. This thing would have been uncovered straight away. So uh, so thankfully difference has been made and and hopefully for the better. You look at the history of accounting, name the big company-killing, multi-billion-dollar fraud schemes that were caught by the big four accounting firms. Go ahead, Ralph. Name them. I can't. You can't. And that's, there's a reason for that. There aren't any. Now, if I asked you, Ralph, name all the big multi-billion-dollar accounting frauds that the big four aided and abetted, we could be here all afternoon. Yeah. So the incentives are totally screwed up in the accounting industry. There's no way the company should be paying the audit fees. It should be the shareholders. It should be a fee every time you buy a share. A certain number of basis points should be allocated to audit fees because the audit fees are currently way too low. Management brags about how low they've gotten the audit fees. So audits become a commodity. The people doing the audit, 80 to 90% of your contact hours are by somebody in their 20s. Who's going to catch fraudsters when you're in your 20s? The only way you're going to catch fraudsters is to have Thinning hair, gray hair, or no hair. <laughs> you have to have been around a block and been burned several times before you're able to catch fraudsters. And these young 20-somethings, the turnover rate there at the Big Four, the hours that these kids work, 25% turnover minimum a year. There's very little training that goes into a Big Four account. Uh, they have some training programs, but they carefully navigate their way around fraud. And the other thing they do is they don't do a lot of substantive testing because that's expensive. So what they do instead is they do analytical tests. They just run some numbers through algorithms that they have, and they say, well, that's our test. And then they do very little substantive testing. For instance, most of the accounting firms, they'll take 75 sample transactions, and that's what they audit. And it might be something very stupid the way they do it. It could be the 25 largest transactions of the company for that year. It could be the 25 newest and 25 something else. Well, many companies will have millions or tens of millions of transactions, and you're auditing 75, and you're saying that's statistically relevant? Relevant? I say, bullshit, that's not relevant at all. And they say, well, we did the Sarbanes-Oxley testing, and they have great internal control, so 75 should be sufficient. Well, it's never sufficient. That's why they miss all the frauds. It's quite funny, because the backdrop to this interview... He was actually speaking at a conference here in the Cayman Islands to all of the auditors and the large accounting firms who are based here, basically telling them, because he did a speech based around some of this stuff, basically telling them that they're clueless and there's no point. They're kind of a bunch of overworked kids. He said, you're never going to catch a fraud and you guys are just going to keep getting prosecuted because you keep missing every fraud. It, you know, it, But it's true. It's the sad state of incentivization in the industry you know, because audit is... Not very profitable, so they just put the youngest, cheapest people on it. The partners who are senior enough to be running that business are overseeing like a million audits, or you know, obviously exaggerating, but a huge number of audits. So they don't really care. It's just a numbers in, numbers out, make a small margin business, and you know the, the propensity to make error is huge. But I just think overall, that was just a he's just a really amusing, fabulous guy to listen to. Yeah, and, and and you know a real bulldog, right? When he gets his when he gets his teeth in your leg, you're not shaking him off. And he's smart as hell. Oh, you yeah. know, covered up by the kind of by the comedy comedy routine that he has as well. Yeah. I mean, he's he's incredibly smart, very focused, and yeah, you don't want him on your tail. You know what's interesting when he talks about this stuff, and and again, you, you and I've sat there talking about the issues with accountancy firms, but you know that presentation that we saw recently on how blockchain is going to disrupt. This uh, this industry, you know, perhaps we'll talk about that another week. But but this industry is ripe for disruption, not just by the Harry Markopolises of the world that want to tear it down from the inside out and get rid of the inefficiencies, but also things like blockchain that will 
revolutionize this and, and perhaps go some way to making sure that these kind of frauds don't happen again. Yeah, exactly right. But, you know, overall, good for Harry. You know, the world needs more yeah. people like him. People, he wasn't being compensated for this. I mean, he does that. He makes money now from whistleblowing. But he wasn't being compensated. He just realized that there was a something wrong and something needs to be done about it. And, you know, the world needs more people like that. He's a true hero. And I was honored to interview him and call him a friend. So, Grant, I recently read a headline um, saying how Harry has now focused his attention on the Boston Metro Authority pension, where he's claiming that they're fraudulently understanding the liabilities by 100%. Yeah, I saw that story too. I mean, I saw the headline, you know, Harry Markopoulos is another right. fraud in his sites. And I, I, I couldn't read it fast. I'm like, wow, okay, where's, where's he going to go with this? Because, yeah. you know, having listened to Harry's conversation around, you realize if he's making this public, he's a long way into this thing. And so it's it's going to be one to sit back and watch unfold. And, and I... The thing about what Harry does, it's it's numbers, and 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 generally speaking, numbers don't lie. You you can be creative with them, but when someone wants to get to the truth and it's numbers based, it's not that difficult thing to do. So I, you know, I when Harry says something like this, for me, it's a case of okay, he's right until he's proved up, until he's proved wrong, rather than the other way around. You know, it, it, right. innocence to me is not assumed in these cases because, again, incentives. It, it's in these guys. Uh, best interest to understate these liabilities. You know, maybe this is just a function of uh, some of the, the time I've spent with family recently, but I imagine Harry must be a pretty intimidating guy if, like, you know, his daughter or son's bringing someone home <laughs> for the first time. Yeah, yeah exactly right. <laughs> Especially if he, if he wants to see your, the state of your finances before you take his daughter out on a date. Right, yeah. He assu- what was that line? He says, I assume everyone is a fraud until proven otherwise. <laughs> exactly right. So, man, that's, that's pretty rough. Well, Grant, let's move on to our final segment called Things I Got Wrong, where we speak with a market expert about something they got wrong, and then we ask them to share that pearl of investing wisdom that they derived from that experience. So hopefully our listeners can avoid those same mistakes. Yeah, this week we had the good fortune to sit and chat with a good buddy of mine, Marion Katusa, who is a professional investor in the resources space, which is a place where you become a professional investor very, very quickly and 99 times out of 100 the hard way. Marion founded Katusa Research, and he told us a story about him going all in in a mining company at was a, a scarily early age. All right, well, joining us this week on Things I Got Wrong, uh, it's another great friend of mine, uh, Marion Katusa, the founder of Katusa Research and Katusa Funds. And there's a really good reason why I wanted to do this segment with Marion. I'm so excited to have him on is because Marion, more than just about anybody I know in finance, uh, is so happy to own his mistakes and talk about them uh, and revisit them and, and try and help other people learn. So, Marion, it's fantastic to have you with us, buddy. Always oh, a pleasure. So, you know, I, we, we don't like, we, we didn't like doing this to people, but the response we've had to this segment uh, has been tremendous. People really appreciate, as you and I have spoken in the past, that how few people are happy to say, hey, you know what, I screwed up, uh, but this is what I took away from it. And, and the response has been fantastic. Well, you should ask my wife. She'd, uh, she'd tell you many more. Than, <laughs> We've only got 10 minutes. We've only got 10 minutes. Marina is not about to cram everything into 10 minutes. Uh, you know what? I'll give you one that I think your younger audience will appreciate. Uh, as you know, I was pretty young when I got into the sector. I had some pretty big success early on, and it came quite quickly. Um, so I spent a lot of time breaking up the sector. And, and as you were, uh, a good one, Grant, is a project I took you to, where I became the largest individual investor in the company uh, at the time as a private company. And I thought, you know what, this is going to become a mine. And at the time in 2006, I had my mentors like Rick Rule and Ross Beatty and all these guys look at me and go, are you nuts? You're going to go build a mine. I had a five-year business plan and I put way too much money up because I thought the world worked on my business plan. And, um, you know, I'm into my third five-year business plan now. I've been on the board for five years. But the better story is from when you go private to the first public on the junior exchange and you raise over $400 million for a company, um, it went from 3 bucks to $0.30 cents in the 08 crisis. And um, I believed in it. I ended up selling my house and going all in. And that's a lesson that the key lesson there, Grant, is, you know, don't put up all your money now based off of what you think it should be because, you know, I did not expect me to be sitting here 12 years on the board and uh, as long as I've been on this company. 
but the world takes you in a different way. And then from 08 to 2011, it went from, you know, 40 cents to eight bucks. And then today it went down to 80 cents. So the question people should ask themselves is, okay, maybe I put up 50% of the money that I intend to uh, buy. And over the next two, three years, things will happen that you can't plan. And ours was the price of copper went from over four bucks to a buck 50. Then it went back to four bucks and then went back to two bucks. So, you know, that, that's a key lesson for the younger guys out there and even the older folks that, you know, buy in tranches and buy very slowly as the company grows. There's nothing wrong with averaging up, not just averaging down. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great story and it's, it's, so, uh, it's such a frequent occurrence in the resource industry, that, you know, what you talk about. And what I'm fascinated to know is how you know because you get these things that happen, as I said, all too often when you're in the resource sector where these stocks can get cut in half, getting cut in half again several times over. And uh, logic would tell you, you know, at some point you have to cut your losses and move on. You were so close to the company, you were right there in amongst it, you knew what was going on, you knew the value of the asset. But how do you how do you pull yourself out of that and take a cold, hard look at at the reality of fair value versus that gut instinct that tells you, you know, I know I'm right and everybody's wrong, or this is just a this is just a blip. How do you make yourself a dispassionate observer of it and understand when to sell your house and go all in and when you're just doing it for the wrong reasons because you're stubborn? Uh, Grant, there was a reason I had a quadruple bypass at 33. <laughs> yes, I think right. <laughs> you, you, you don't really know. Uh, look, you, you try to be as uh, balanced as you can possibly be, but you got to control your emotions. And you know the key factor there, you said it, uh, I was so involved. I was up at site. I've been to the project hundreds of times. I could jump in my car just like I took you there and back in a day. I know everybody there. The money wasn't being spent, you know, on nonsense. It was moving the project forward, and I just believed that if copper would correct, we would be okay. And 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 it was a clean concentrate. And today, it's the third largest producer in the country, so it's worked out. But look, it hasn't always worked out for me. Another great lesson was I personally lost over a million bucks um, off of what all of the major the big banks in Canada and all of the top research firms were 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 giving a, a wild uh, like low risk buy on a service company, which essentially, when you look at it back, going, geez, it makes so much sense that this was a fraud. Uh, it was called Poseidon, and I remember all the banks phoning me, going, "Man, we want to get you on this." And I said, "I don't know. I don't really know the story. I just got back from uh, um, my surgery." And they're like, no, no, it's got to be really good. It's going to move forward. And they had all these accounts receivables that all of the uh, bank analysts were assuming would get all paid. And there's a story of, wait a second, you know, these these payables didn't ever come in. And what type of payables, what kind of accounts receivables were they? And management basically were fraudulent. So there are times, Grant, you're going to get caught. I've been caught, but that's a good example that all of the big banks, all of these analysts got caught, and I invested on it going, well, I, I, I assumed that these banks did their due diligence and went to the clients who they, they, you know, if these banks were putting in 20, 30, 40 million dollars, I thought, okay, well, I'll put a couple of million bucks in. And they didn't go and find out who the clients were that had these accounts receivable uh, and it, it disappeared. It went to money heaven. So there was a stock that went from $20 to zero. Um, and I jumped in trying to catch the knife. So never, ever try to catch a knife. I bought stock at six bucks thinking, ah, this was the, all the analysts were giving a $15 target when it was $6. I thought, okay, I'll jump in. What I should have done was, okay, buy maybe 10 or 20% of my desired position and ease into the position and get to know it or make sure that I know someone personally that has been to the project. And it, and that's where it comes down to investing in the people, Grant. you got to believe that the guys who are running it have more percentage of their net worth. They have skin in the game than you do because at the end of the day, you can't go and know everything about every project, but make sure that the guys running it are honest, legitimate, and will make it work. And follow the insider selling and looking back at it, the Poseidon guys were, many of them were blowing out their paper, but they didn't report it till later. So there's an example of, you got to make sure that, you know, when it's time to sell, you just got to say, look, I was wrong. I'm out and move on. 
Marin, I want to change gears a little bit and actually uh, ask you a question, because you said you started investing when you were pretty young. And so for our younger listeners here, what was what was that like? What was the learning curve like? And did you seek out any mentors to help you through this process? Uh, yeah, I always seeked out mentors. Um, I started out, you know, going through the CFA program and you sit there and you're like, okay, you go to these conferences and you got someone like Rick Rule or Doug Casey talking about warrants and you're like, geez, that word doesn't even exist in the CFA program. And you realize that investing in the real world is very different than the textbooks. The guys who you're taking these lessons from aren't the movers and shakers in the industry. So it's kind of like you're always behind by a few years. Um, initially, it was overwhelming and, you know, I'd follow these gurus. Well, the fact is most of these gurus are f-ing idiots. Uh, they're either crooks or they're paid for or they're living off a of success from, you know, a stock pick they made 30 years ago. So be very careful who your guru is. Uh, is he a, you know, uh, just a, a poser or is this guy the real deal? And the other thing that was the biggest lesson was uh, I started out as a high school math teacher, and physics teacher. Then I got teaching in the college and, you know, from there I left. But I was very sharp mathematically. That was my strength. But I remember I found this company online and I had a question about the geology and I did geology in university. My, um, you know, I knew a bunch of the guys in the sector because in Vancouver, I, I have the benefit of being in the epicenter of the resource world for financing, which is Vancouver for the junior resource sector specifically. And um, literally like 80% of all the companies are located in Vancouver. And I was so nervous phoning the company. And the first phone call I ever made was to a guy that became a very close friend of mine, uh, Ron Peratt, and he ended up selling his company that eventually got into Newmont. So he was more than happy to answer my questions. And the biggest lesson is these guys are there to not just share their information, but educate people. So don't be shy to ask questions, like pick up the phone and call, go to the conferences. And today, more so than, you know, 16, 17 years ago, uh, you can get a hold of virtually anybody, whether it's through Twitter or, you know, emails or phone calls. Remember, the mining sector, our crusty old geos, you know, 15 years ago, email was just kicking into the sector. So today, most of them know how to use uh, email, not all of them, but most of them. So get out there and ask, go to these conferences. There's even teleconferences, there's blog sites. There's so many ways to get to know people. Yeah, it's a great point, Marina. And that, that community, the mining community, I think there's a, there's a real kind of brothers in arms feeling about it because uh, they get so beaten down from time to time. And, and, and you're absolutely right. It, I've lost count of the number of people that come up to me at these conferences and ask really smart questions. And, and you can't help but engage with people that, that ask you really smart questions and you know, answer them as best you can and, and offer them all the help that, uh, that, that you can give them. Not just that, but, you know, you could be sitting beside, you know, mining Hall of Famers, uh, Grant, in, at my conference in San Fran 2015, when, you know, we're sitting there, you and I are on stage, but you had David Lowell, yeah. who the University of Arizona is named after. He's sitting front row next to him is Ross Beatty. You got Doug Casey. You got Eric Sprott. You got like, just go there. And these guys are there because they love the industry. So, you know, they're there like a fan also, and they would love to share, hey, I like this company, or I'm, I'm bearish on silver, or I'm bullish on silver, and you can always learn something. Uh, and they always have business cards on them, and they hand them out. You know, look at Rick Rules, who's been a, an amazing mentor of mine, and we became partners. And then you become kind of like colleagues, and he'll phone me up, hey, Marin, you're a bit stronger on this side, can you do this for me, or vice versa, or whatever. And you, you establish that rapport with these guys. Well, you know, I met Rick 16 years ago, and Grant, I don't know if you know the story, but I met him at a mining conference. And he sat there for over an hour after everybody left. It was a Sunday night, and Bonnie, his wife, is like, Rick, we gotta go to this dinner. If his wife didn't drag him out, Rick would have stayed there all night. Now, why would he do that? Was he because he thought I was a nice guy? No, he was captivated with, the conversation, he loved the industry so much. That's what he wants to do. He has The guy doesn't have a TV. He has no interest in watching anything, zero knowledge of pop culture. But we sat there and it was like, he gave me his business card. He goes, feel free to call me anytime. So I did. And, you know, what was it? Maybe eight years later, we were partners in a fund. Yeah, it's, 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 it's great. I mean, look, Rick, Rick's, I know I've got to know Rick over the years and I've had exactly the same experience. You know, he's, he's happy to share. And, you know, whenever you're around him, and I know you know this, 
he just gets deluged by people who want to do that and want to talk to him. And it's amazing how how patient and how you know kind he is with these people. And he's you know he's he will take the time to to talk to people. So yeah, I think that's a great lesson. Ask. Rick looks at every person as a potential client too. So there's always <laughs> settings for Rick. <laughs> yeah. Well, Marin, in the interest of engagement and learning and sharing knowledge, um, for our listeners who want to read more about your work or, or even get in touch with you via social media, how can they do that? I got a website, katusaresearch.com, uh, so that's a starter. We got a free newsletter there. Twitter, I'm always, whatever kind of fancies my interest, I'll just tweet. Sometimes I won't tweet for a month. Sometimes I'll tweet a few things a day or you know whatever. And for anyone who's really aggressive, just phone the office. Uh, I've got a crew of eight that work for me here in Vancouver. And, you know, we can, uh, there's always a way to get a hold of someone. And my conferences, I think the San Francisco show in November and then the January show in Vancouver. I think, Grant, are you going to come to the one in San Fran or the Vancouver one? Hey, listen, I get the invite. I'm there. You know that. Well, I gave you the invite last time. You didn't show up. Hey, that's not fair. I did. I came in November and then I didn't make January. I will, I will confess to that. Perfect. Well, Marin, just to confirm, it's uh, I think you have two Twitter handles. You have Marin Katusa, and you also have Katusa Research. So, uh, which yeah, one should people? I, I'm Marin Katusa, so the uh, the back office is the Katusa Research. Got it. So, yeah. All right. All right. That's a problem when you start running things. You you lose control of what? There's two handles. <laughs> <laughs> Marin, mate, it's always a pleasure to talk. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate. it. I know people are going to love uh, getting to hear your perspective on this stuff. You bet. Anything else? I'm always here, guys. All thanks, right. Marin. I'll see you soon, man. Thanks a lot. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Now, Grant, when I listen to Marin and just try and appreciate you know, his risk appetite, I, he's, he's been around, he's still thriving. And I want to ask you, like, what separates people like him you know, and those who would have quit a long time ago in some other phase of the resource super cycle? Because these things do go in cycles. So what do you think separates someone like Marin from those other, other people who have quit? Yeah, you know, a lot of it, it, it always comes down to how you handle adversity, particularly in the resources space. And because it's so cyclical, there's an element to it of the, the time you get in. If you happen to catch the rising part of the cycle, uh, it can be very good for you. You can make a lot of money. But the, the danger of that is that you can be fooled into thinking you're a genius very, very easily. Um, and you get bolder and bolder and bolder until you're all in at the top of the cycle and then you get crushed on the way down. So, you know, for Marin, having tough experiences around him at the beginning helped him understand how you can go wrong. And I think in any investment, understanding what the risks are and understanding how badly you could be impacted by certain things happening is is so crucial to learn. Uh, the other thing Marin did and, and does brilliantly is find out who the right mentors are mm. and 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 cultivate them and, and reach out to these guys. And the mining industry, you know, it's one big brotherhood. People are very open with sharing their their information and their wisdom. Um, and Marin recognized that and went out and, and got people like Rick Rule to, to mentor him um, they've subsequently become great friends and, and you know, understanding that a guy like Rick would be open to helping a guy like Marion is, is a crucial thing to understand and, and it's not just Rick he's the first name that springs to mind but there are plenty of guys in the industry that have, have taken some serious knocks themselves and are, and are happy to help young, smart, hungry guys avoid those pitfalls. Yeah, I remember, uh, so Rick Rule immediately came to my mind as well and I remember listening to an interview he did I think about a year and a half ago and, and he's saying, yeah, like I've made fortunes, you know, multiple times over and lost them yeah. multiple times as well. And, uh, and, and, and just to have the opportunity to learn from those kinds of people must be just tremendously valuable. And, and uh, hopefully, like, you know, people can actually spend the time to identify those mentors that you, that you can, I guess, um, relate to. And, and also, I mean, with Twitter nowadays, it's the barrier to actually speaking yeah. to these people so low. It's a great point. But, but I think, you know, the lesson for me from that was uh, make sure every time you get beaten up, you learn a lesson from it. Yeah. it. It's so important to not just curse dumb luck, but to understand, okay, what could I have done differently to ensure a different outcome? Yeah, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, it brings us to the end of this episode. Just a quick legal disclaimer before we end. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors only. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops and trade responsibly. Yeah, next week we'll be back with our usual long short and things I got wrong segments. And for next week's documentary feature, we will be continuing our series on financial history. We'll be telling you a story about the father of central banking and one of his early ventures that led to a massive bubble and crash a couple decades before the fomenting of the French Revolution and the complete upheaval of French society. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. More than any other of its kind, I think it, it highlights the links between monetary policy and societal upheaval 
just just brilliantly. But in the meantime, if you have an interesting question about this week's show, or as I keep saying, anything else for that matter, we would love to hear it. So send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. Grant, leave I'm figuring out that review. I'm figuring it out. It, well, listen, the day you figure it out, you're going to make a lot of money out of that knowledge. Uh, If you want to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, then please do follow us on Twitter, at Real Vision. You can find us hanging out on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. And you can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. Finally, you can follow me at Macrodidact. And that's it from us. We will see you back here same time next week. 